right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Bright Brains Podcast. Today, I have my guest, Allison Mahmood. Did I say that uh, properly? Yeah, that's about right, Allison Mahmood, yeah. Uh, I'm really excited to have a talk with him today and learn more about what he has going on. So welcome to the pod, Allison, and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in tech. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, how did I start in tech? Uh, I guess we can go all the way back to the start of my, my first explorations around tech, uh, which mm -hmm. was actually kind of first learned uh, to code, I guess you could say. Uh, I technically, so this is kind of a weird story, uh, but technically before I knew how to write by hand, I knew how to type on a computer because uh, uh, my parents, they had a lot of computers in their businesses and stuff, and I always kind of messed around with them. So before I even... You know, I could write letters with my hand. I kind of learned how to type on a keyboard, uh, which was kind of weird. And then, you know, from there, I kind of, because uh, back then, a lot, some of the computers they had, like, okay, yeah, you could, I think Doom was installed on some of the computers, but that was about the extent of uh, games and, you know, Microsoft Word or whatever the word process back then was. That's not really fun for, like, a little kid. Mm -hmm. uh, so I ended up learning, like, basics of how to work with the computers, but some of also coding as well, because I was just... You know, they would take me to the office and if they had meetings or something, I would just be kind of hanging out around there. And I'm like, well, I don't want to bother the people that are busy. So then I'm just playing with the computers. So that's where I kind of think all started. Uh, but kind of more serious kind of involvement in tech uh, would start with one of my later businesses. I think there was, so there was a, when I was around 17, uh, this was, I think, probably around like the third venture that I was building uh, we built a financial derivatives product for a bank that we ended up pitching to them. And a lot of that was quite tech-oriented, uh, where we had we were basically to figure out how it all works. We are building a lot of systems around it, and that really kind of introduced more deeper into tech from the finance side, uh, which is probably what led to uh, my next, like my first like proper, proper startup, where we had a lot of people working for us and everything, uh, which was a financial brokerage. Uh, so it was a brokerage based out of Europe, uh, that was focused on impact investing. Uh, what that essentially is, is that I was trying to help people in, you know, invest into businesses based on their own personal values. So I don't know, you can imagine someone is really, really against oil, but they're okay with firearms because I don't know, say they're a very traditional communist, but they still want to benefit from mm -hmm. the market. Well, a traditional communist would be very, very pro-gun, but they're probably going to be concerned with some of the environmental impacts like, you know, around oil. So they don't want to be out of investing into gun companies that are selling guns to people, but they don't want to be in the defense industry, but they also don't want to be with oil, blah, 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 right? And currently, if you look at like the normal markets, uh, I think now it's finally getting a bit better. Uh, you basically mostly had ESG, which is basically a preset standard that you had to follow. And even then, that standard is very, very flawed. So we were looking at it like, well, what if you're a person that doesn't align with the align exactly with all these checkboxes that somebody that came up with the ESG standard has decided are the criteria? Where we were like, well, let's uh, let's let's build something for people like that, uh, which is what we did with Fair. Uh, and then now, uh, after Fair, because I had to shut it down, I went back to university to finish my degree, and now I am uh, working on my next startup, trying to figure out what exactly that will be. Uh, you know, I was looking a lot at AI, looking at some banking stuff, trying to see uh, kind of what the next thing will be. And uh, one of the ones I'm been looking at is actually uh, what I mentioned is the uh, what I mentioned to you around kind of the AI, basically building a layer of the internet for AI 
to interact with because the internet nowadays is built for people, right? If you go to, I don't know, facebook.com, that's made for people. Any website you go to, that's made for people. Uh, what, we're look, what we were looking at there is, well, if people are going to start using AIs and LLMs to interact with uh, the digital world around them, those you know, models are going to need a way to interact with the internet back. And so that's what we were kind of looking at there. That, that's what we were exploring. With, that's what we are exploring with it is building that layer of the internet that is specifically made for LLMs or AIs or whatever you want it to be. Awesome. So, yeah, you, you lived a pretty interesting life, man. So you sold, you started a company at 17 and sold a product so my, to a bank? My first business was at 14. Uh, that was like 14. a proper business. Uh, at 17 is when we built the derivatives product. We ended up pitching it to some banks and things like that. Uh, so, you know, depending on kind of where you want to go. So you, you self-taught on how to code or did you like also get some kind of formal training in coding? So not like formal education, but like, you know, when I was like, oh, I want to learn about blockchain, how to code around that. I would just find the people that knew it and I would ask them questions until I understood it. So I wouldn't say completely self-taught because I had a lot of people helping me learn it, understand it, but it wasn't some formal education. My formal education is in physics. That's wild, man. So when you sold your first product to a bank and you were like 17 years old, how did that get set up? Did you just like approach them and say, hey, I have this uh, banking services product that I would like to sell you? Because I would imagine being 17, they would probably like wonder what's this kid doing in here? Like, get him out of here, so, you know? Let me just kind of clarify one thing with it because we didn't sell a product to them. Uh, what we did was we, was we designed a new derivatives product. Uh, so, you know, when you look at some kind of product that bank offers on this, so, you know, banks have two sides, right? They have the client services side where, I don't know, you have your bank account or something like that. And then you have the market side. I don't know, you buy an options contract, right? There's somebody on the other end of that options contract. So for stuff where there are you know there, there's then with those kinds of options contracts or you know other derivatives products which are called derivatives because they're derived from some underlying thing it can be a stock in a company it can be the price of wheat whatever else that it's a derivative of uh, those products are then split into two categories uh, there are ones that are called over-the-counter or OTC and then there's ones that are just traded through the market the ones where they're traded through the market the two parties on each end are just normal people. It can be a hedge fund and you, it can be two different hedge funds, it can be whoever, but it's being traded between people. Uh, so there, that's, uh, that's the, the center area. And then the OTC, there when you, when you wanna buy that over-the-counter product, you buy it you know, over-the-counter, meaning you go to a bank and you're like, hey, I wanna buy this much of this product, and then they're on the other side of the contract, as opposed to with the other ones where on the other side there's another hedge fund, another person, whoever, right? It's not a fixed set amount. So with the OTC products, we specifically designed a specific derivatives product for that space, which essentially what it means is we came up with a set of conditions under which money would be exchanged in certain ways that would be beneficial. Now, eventually, uh, so how we so we basically came up with that. I can get into the story of that a little bit later. Uh, but when we once we came up with that, we ended up uh, you know trying to reach out to a lot of banks, trying to get anybody we could find to listen to us. Uh, we went to a bunch of meetings. Well, actually, sorry, we didn't get a lot of meetings early on. We were very much struggling. 
eventually we found someone who would listen, hear us out. Uh, so we had to sit down with them, discussed it, explained everything, and they were like, well, you could already do this, w- w- like what you designed with this other set of complex uh, products. So we didn't ultimately end up being able to sell it uh, because there's a different way that the bank already had to get a very similar result. Uh, but it will basically we reached the stage where we got to like pitch it to a bank. They were like, yes, this is very interesting, except by combining these three other products, you can get the same result. And why would we take less money? So they were like, okay, at the end of it, we didn't end up selling it. Uh, just to be perfectly clear on that. Gotcha. So even though you didn't sell it, I imagine that was a great learning opportunity for you, right? Learning more about how the business end of tech, that that was an invaluable experience, I imagine. So I want to ask you more about the company you're starting now. You briefly explained about how the internet is used for people and you want to uh, use AI to basically explain more about Mm -hmm. what this is and and give some examples of how it will work. Sure, sure. So I'm sure you're familiar with ChatGPT, right? Yes. Yeah, perfect. So... For anyone that isn't, it's basically like this AI from OpenAI. You can Google that. But if when you use it, you can ask it questions, you can talk to it, whatever. But now imagine, you know, decade in the future and you want to, you know, you want to buy a new pair of shoes. So you will tell ChatGPT or whatever the AI model you're using at the time is. It's like, hey, I want a new pair of shoes. And I don't know, so you, I want hiking boots that are brown. Uh, right now, if you ask that to ChatGPT, it'll be like, what the fuck? I have no clue what to do here. I don't know how to interact with anything. I have no clue what I'm doing. Right. And the the thing is, there's a lot of people that are working on developing the actual integration so that you can use it for just normal things. Because right now it's basically learned everything from the internet. Because the way large language models are trained is you take a bunch of data from the internet and they just basically there's a network that's set up in computers. It's a bunch of complex math where it learns from that data to predict what's going to be the next word in a chain. So it understands how to basically respond to text. Now, while it sounds ridiculous that something learning this way would reach a point where it can start to do tasks for you, it can interact with stuff for you, uh, I'm just going to go on a little bit of a tangent to explain why this system, in a very abstract way, I think if there are people who are like experts in around LLMs, they will kill me for explaining it this way, but I found this probably the simplest way to get someone who doesn't have the technical background to understand it, is think about how a kid learns to speak, right? The way they learn languages, they learn words, and then they learn uh, sentences, and then they understand how to use that language to reason, how to justify things, how to uh, be logical about stuff. Well, when those systems kind of learned in a very similar way, right? They learn what words come next. Now they can form sentences and now they can even perform some logic. Now, as we develop these further, we want them to be able to actually interact with us, right? Think about how in today's world, some people will have an Alexa at home and they'll be like, Alexa, I need more toilet paper. And the Alexa will go to Amazon and will order a bunch of toilet paper. The thing is, the AI or basically the system within something like Alexa is very basic. It will recognize that you said buy, it will recognize toilet paper, and then it knows that it's hard-coded, that it's when you say buy toilet paper, it's supposed to search for toilet paper on Amazon and give you, I don't know, the first result and put it in your cart and then order it. 
and all those parts are hard coded. When working with LLMs, what we're what people are trying to do is to have that model figure all that out on its own. Now, in order to be able to do all of this on its own, it's to understand how to interact with the world, how to you know. If you if, right now all those models have as an output, right? What we can give you is text. Now, how do you get something like that's only outputting text to actually interact with something? Well, to, in today's world, if people want to interact with computers on a very basic level, that's obviously programming, right? We have program languages where you're writing code, and that's how we as people through language we interact with computers. Well, you can think of the LLM in a very similar way. We can get the LLM to interact with computers and other devices through language because LMs are very good at writing code uh, in short parts. So you can teach it that when it's trying to do an order, this is how you search the internet. And it can, you know, as some structured way of putting together the words to search through the internet. But that's particularly where today's capacity of what it can do ends, right? We have uh, Bing Chat, you have Bard, you have even, I think, OpenAI's ChatGPT now they can search Google, they can find stuff and they can web scrape. But that means, that doesn't mean that they can actually interact with it, right? If that, uh, if ChatGPT can web scrape and it can, it can find out what's on the website, it can read all the text because all that text is hard coded. But if you now tell it, I don't know, let's say you want to order, you know, a, you know, book a room in Aruba, right? It can find booking.com. And even if, if you type into Google, book a hotel room in Aruba, it will actually give you a pretty solid result. So you will end up on the right page for a hotel in Aruba. But then there's going to be a button there. If, you know, if right now, let's say you go on your phone and Google what I just like, you know, hotels in Aruba, there will be a button there that says book the hotel. And after you click that, there'll be a bunch of forms and all of these extra things. Right now, these, uh, these LLMs cannot actually interact with them. Right? They can read everything that's on there, but they can't click the button. They can't fill out the form. They can't do all this because all that internet was made for people. So, so the solution to actually letting it interact with it is the same way it can interact with, you know, same way people can interact with a computer by using code. You build in functionality into these websites where as opposed to buttons, which are very simple to use for people, you have something, you know, basically, if someone's more technical, an API, uh, that the AI can interact with so that it can submit stuff, so it can fill out forms, so it can receive requests and then send stuff back. Uh, because that way, you actually reach a point where you're no longer just dealing with the AI can read a bunch of stuff, but we're now reaching a point where it can actually interact, where it can do things for you, where it can, like we talked earlier, buy you shoes that you asked for or book you the hotel room in Aruba. This is interesting. So I'm curious, what are some other ways other than like shopping or buying things, what are some other ways in which this technology could be utilized? Well, basically anything where you interact with something on the internet. Uh, you know, let's say instead of it being through a text prompt like ChatGPT is today, you have that integrated with your Alexa. So it can recognize your voice, but then it's ChatGPT responding. You could tell it, hey, ChatGPT, I want to write a tweet about... BenQ monitors, and I want to talk about how upsetting it was. And then it will respond to you like, hey, how about this? And it might give you some kind of draft for a tweet. And then you're like, okay, cool, post it on my personal account. 
Well, in order to be able to post, it again needs to interact. So it needs some kind of an API that it can interact with the internet with and post. So any point where on the internet you're not just reading, but you're actually submitting something, you're interacting in some way, that's a point where something like this would be very useful. Wow. So it kind of feels like, you know, how in a lot of sci-fi movies, there's kind of like a little they'll just talk to the computer and they'll say, hey, computer, do this for me, or computer, do that for me. Kind of like Iron Man and Jarvis or something like that, or like Halo and Cortana, you know? Absolutely. I don't know if you get that reference, but that's what it kind of seems like, you know? That is a huge leap because right now with our cell phones, you can say, hey, Siri, do this for me, and they'll, wait, hold on. I said Siri and then my phone started to open <laughs> up. But yeah, this is why I imagine there's a lot of like competition in this space, though, to be the first person to get there, you know, because Apple has Siri, you know, Microsoft has their own version. Is there kind of like a race to the, be the first to get there to market this? So on the end of the actual AI, yes, right? Because we've got Google making its BARD, OpenAI has GPT, uh, Facebook has their Llama models, and all these different companies are racing in that space. But the layer of integration that we're looking at, uh, those aren't really being built out yet. It's very early for that space because right now the race is all about who can get a language model that's better, that can be more accurate, right? You probably saw, I don't know if, if you look Twitter, Reddit, wherever you kind of uh, look at uh, as like your favorite social media, you probably at some point saw these posts like, oh, GPT can now do the test for lawyers and pass the bar or pass the medical exams, right? So that's the stage at w which we're at right now. Everybody is racing to get these models to be good enough and accurate enough to actually put out, um, like, to, to actually be able to be smart enough. Let's put it that way. Uh, the race when it comes to actual interactions and integrations, that hasn't really kicked off yet because that's going to be the next step. And that's why we're kind of looking to build something. That's what we're looking at building there is integrate that interaction. Because if you can, if once these are good, because even right now, a lot of them would be good enough for simple interactions. If you told them how to interact with it, they just need the layer for interaction. So that's why we're, that's what we were looking at back then. It basically integrated as like a layer in the internet that this is made for AIs to interact with. So it's very early within that space. Uh, it hasn't really reached a point where that's the next race. Uh, but you know, as soon as we reached some critical point uh, with these AIs, like that's going to be the next thing, because then you know you're going to end up just not even using a web browser. You just interact with it with some AI on there. Like if you'd like to type, your home monitor might just be a text prompt. You know, like some hacker with Linux, but now it's your AI. That's wild, man. So basically what you're saying is there could be a point where we won't even have to have a keyboard or anything like that for our computer. We would probably just maybe have like a an Apple Watch or some kind of device that's on us and we would just interact with it with our with our voice. Well that's what we are already, right? Most people nowadays have a phone, they have maybe like they maybe have a tablet, but a lot of people nowadays don't even have a computer that's their own. They might have a, a computer from their job, but I remember seeing some statistic where like 40% of people don't even own computer, like personal computers anymore. So we're yeah. kind of, in a way, already there. This is just kind of the next step of where 
you don't even need to do that much where just a lot of the processing, a lot of the actions just happen on their own. So if you think about, I think a, a good comparison for this is actually when I think back to when I was first, when like my grandma got her first smartphone and I was like, oh, you know, it has, it has this Google voice, whatever it was called, Google Now. You can just ask it stuff. And she was like, oh, Google, uh, what's the recipe for this? Or how do I do this? Stuff like that. She was kind of treating it as if it was going to be the LLM because to her, this was like, well, if he says it could do this, it should be able to do this. And she kind of went a little bit further with what the functionality was at the time. But it's like the people that don't understand you know, the development technology and like took a big leap around uh, phones or like interacting with Siri, what they often ex noticed expected was kind of the stage that we're heading to right now where you can just ask it to do something and we'll just do it for you. You don't have to do anything. Because right now you ask Siri, it's going to open Netflix for you, but it's not going to uh, find the exact, I don't know, if you, I don't know, some TV show, like let's say Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and you want to find the episode with, I don't really watch TV that much, I can't think of something. I don't know, some, there, let's say there's a wedding in there somewhere. You want to be like, yeah. hey, what's the episode, f show me the exact moment in Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Netflix, or like, no, you don't even have to say on Netflix, where there was the wedding, where this and this character did something. And because it can now search, it can interact, it understands stuff, it could even do that. Right now, if you ask Siri, the extent of it is it can open Netflix and load up Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But then, you know, that there's no intelligence there. There's logic there, right? Because we can do an if command, like, if this, then do that, then do that, then do that. But here, it can figure out the, a lot of the logic itself, which is where a lot of like, these personal assistants based on LLMs and things like this are get, trying to get to as fast as possible right now. Are there any ethical concerns that have been raised about this technology? Because one thing that comes to mind is back to your analogy about the toilet paper. If like, if I say, hey, buy me some toilet paper, but the program has been made to only buy a certain brand of toilet paper and not any other kind, you know, I could see how people could program this AI model to prefer certain brands or certain information. Like say, if you want to know about a certain event that happened in the news, it would only tell you one perspective and not another perspective. So that's just one thing that kind of popped in my head. Are there any other kind of ethical concerns? Yeah, that like what you mentioned is literally already happening. Um, mm -hmm. When people ask, let's say, G there was some lot of tests when like the people are testing how biased GPT is, it would literally uh, be like show very clear bias when it came to some like if coverage of news events, things like that. So that's already a very present issue. And I think the the shopping one is one of the ones that we really looked at as something that would be some, that needs that would be solved. Well, not solved, but it would be improved by what we're looking at because. Realistically, if, if nobody builds what we're looking to build, then big store, you know, big businesses like let's say Amazon, they'll they'll have their own integration. Uh, eBay will have their own integration. Whatever big company will have their own integrations. But it's the smaller businesses for which building out something like this would be very like prohibitively pro prohibitive to actually access it. So. That's like one of the key parts that we're looking at is that this isn't what we what we're looking what we're talking about building, isn't as important for some massive business, right? Amazon will make their own integration. They don't need that layer itself. They don't care. But 
the smaller businesses. Let's say you have some restaurant that you like that's owned like by four generations of the same family. They're not like for them building out the entire infrastructure for integrations is a massive ask. But if there is that layer, if it's a lot more standardized, if it's a lot more simpler, then they can actually be search. They can be booked in. Let's say through a system like that. So what we're you know with the layer of the internet for AI, that's primarily beneficial for these smaller to, uh, smaller businesses where they now get to take part in it as well. Because Amazon will build it for themselves either way. The question is, will everybody have it or not? You know this this AI thing. It's it's fascinating, but also frightening. You know because I see so many ways in which it could go wrong. Do you have any fears about AI? Yeah, that I think keep you up at night or anything like that. Well, to be fair, I, I sleep quite well, uh, so <laughs> I'm not sure to the extent where it would keep me up at night. But there, yeah, there's there's definitely massive risk there. Uh, but the the, the the very irresponsible, but also very, very true answer to it is if somebody, if like, if you don't build it, somebody else will, uh, which is kind of fucked up, right? That yeah. if, you know, that you have to try to build it so that because if you don't, then somebody else will. So, but there is the aspect of it that if you're the one to build it, you can try to make it safer. Uh, now, to be fair, the aspect of the internet that we're talking about building, uh, that we were talking about building there, Mm-hmm. that's not something that would really pose as much of a risk because like, okay, cool. Your AI can order you shoes or it can do this or that. Like that wouldn't really transform the risk factors in such a way. That's That would more just be beneficial for smaller and medium-sized businesses. But there are absolutely like big questions that people have around it. There's a reason where, why, you know, there's so many discussions about, well, should we even try to do this, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, and I'm not sure if you've seen, but there were some countries that try to ban the use of it or development of it. And as much as I understand their concerns, the reality of it is that unless everybody bans it, it will continue to be built. And even if everybody bans it, somebody somewhere will build it for fun or some military will pay for development so that they can have it. So it's kind of like the nuclear bomb, right? Once someone has it, everyone has to have it. Yeah, that's a that's a perfect analogy. So, what are some ways? I know we talked about uh, the bad things, but what are some other good things that AI will bring to the world? Things that maybe people haven't even thought about. You know, you're in the tech space, so you think about these kind of things. What are some uh, advantages that AI are going to bring to the world that common people aren't really even thinking about? I think one aspect that people kind of consider, but I don't think quite consider just to extent to which it will be helpful and it's helpful already is learning. Uh, let's say right now, you know, I've been looking a lot into open banking because I'm considering uh, building something there. And if I look at, nor- you know, if normally I want to learn about open banking, I would start Googling around, looking for stuff. And then I have a question, so I Google again and I end up with 50,000 tabs that I eventually don't even end up reading because it's too many and my computer just crashes. Mm-hmm. But let's say you want to learn about open banking with now, help what online. is open uh, what is open banking real quick before we go okay further. <laughs> i feel like i'm introducing a lot of like new weird things basically the way i would put open banking is you know how people talked about how web3 and crypto will change the world of finance and how everything will work mm-hmm. open banking is the response from the inst- like from the banking sector it's like no 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 we're not going to decentralized 
that's crazy, that's too expensive, that's not useful for the average person. But the accessibility, the, you know, you can have like moving around the money, the payment structures, a lot of these are actually very useful. So if you think about when it comes to, you know, when it comes to crypto, a lot of people are like, well, it's cheaper than some two, 3% fee from like MasterCard. Well, yeah, open banking solves that because it basically integrates the functionality to be done through the banks without having a, like a processor. It lets, you know, if you have some app, uh, so this is not really much of a thing in the US yet because the US doesn't really s support open banking as much. This is mainly innovation happening in the EU, UK, Middle East, India, and some of these other countries. But essentially, it's like, okay, let me, uh, let me try to think for a second how to phrase this. So right now, a lot of people, well, not right now, actually, but if we go, let's say, five, ten years back, if you had a bank account with a, some bank, you'd probably have their mortgage from the bank and you'll have everything else from the bank because there they have all the information, integrates better, it works together better. But with open banking, it kind of separates out the different offerings of banks and lets anybody work with them. So as a, you know, five years ago, if I wanted to, if you wanted to have an app that takes all of your payments across all your different bank accounts and aggregates them and then lets you pay however you need to, that could only be done within your specific bank's online banking. With open banking, it opens up those integrations for anybody can build it for you and then you can use it through that third-party platform. So essentially, it turns banks into providers of individual services and you can kind of cherry pick what you want and then there's some third-party provider that can kind of package it in for you. Uh, I think a really good example of this is where open banking is trying to replace uh, companies like MasterCard, Visa, and Amex because I think everybody knows that they charge massive fees to businesses, right? When you pay with a, like, uh, if you're in the US, when you go to a gas station, you've probably seen like, oh, debit card costs this much, and with a credit card, it costs this much. The gas is more expensive with a credit card. The reason that happens is because with debit cards, they charge, let's say, 2 to 3%, but if you pay with a credit card, the payment processors will charge like 5 6%, which is horrendously large amounts of money. Like that's an insane yes. amount of money that they're taking. Yes. And with open banking, uh, that people are looking at solving that because if you do a wire transfer, right? If, you know, you wire some money to your friend or to some business associate or whoever, there, these fees are either much lower or in most of Europe, they don't exist at all. If I want to wire money to someone in, let's say from Czech Republic to Poland, that money is wired for free. It's wired instantly. And it's like, it, it takes me like 10 seconds, 20 seconds to get it done. I know that in the US, you guys use a different system where I think it takes like two days to move the money, uh, which is kind of an aspect where you guys are a lot more behind. But in, that's why in Europe, open banking is a lot further ahead where you can you could basically use a wire transfer the same way you use a credit card. And what open banking does is it's trying to actually provide those integrations so it's actually as easy to use because still when you're doing a wire transfer you need account numbers you need sort codes you need you know there's a the, the fraud prevention systems work completely differently if you want to refund that works completely differently so open banking is taking the aspects of traditional functionality like instant wire transfers and trying to build on extra layers on top of it to make it more functional but it's essentially the banking sector's response to web3 thinking that it can you know completely destroy it this is interesting yeah you know 
the ways in which this technology is going to change everything is uh, it's very fascinating, like I said before. So my question is, how long before this LLM model that you're talking about, the product that you're talking about making, how long before the common man will get this? Like, will it be like five years away, 10 years away, or even longer? I, I don't know. Uh, no, no. That's that's the most that's the most asked question. I can, uh, sorry, answer I can give, because a lot of this adoption is dependent on like several different parties, right? You need to have, because uh, like for example, OpenAI, uh, they already have systems for plugins that could connect into it. So with them, that would make it quite accessible. But for example, with Bard or with Llama from Facebook and these, some of these others, you don't have those integrations yet. And then you have some open source models where you do. So a lot of this is dependent on the supportive integrating stuff on their end. But then also you need adoption from the stores and this different businesses and how, when they integrate it. So this is, you know, an, a build out like this is one of the like chicken and egg problems where everybody has to build it and integrate it, but it's only beneficial to everyone once everyone has done it. So it can take two years, it can take five years, I don't think it will take a decade. That seems a bit too long, but it's definitely going to have to happen eventually. And when it does, it's going to change how we interact with a lot of the things digitally. Do you think there's going to be some pushback to this? Um, maybe from like corporations and things like that who to see it as a threat to their business model? I don't think so. Alexei, so will they try to push back? Yes. Will they be able to really push back? I don't think so. Uh, because when I look at the AI space around LLMs, uh, what you see there, there's a big push around that the main models that everybody wants people to use should be open source. There's numerous businesses working on open source models that anybody could use, which they're trying to make as good or better than stuff like GPT. And you can see that the rates at which they're improving their models is insane like it's if you compare it to how long open ai took to build out their solutions they're doing it in a tenth of the time maybe even less so i think these will quickly catch up and potentially even exceed because obviously if you have an open source solution there's far more people looking at it far more people that can find issues and improvements so generally open source things if given enough attention will move faster and i think we will reach a point where once they exceed this, then sure, you can have whatever corporation you want to try to slow this down, but like, there's nothing they can do. It's like Linux, right? Linux is open source. Sure, if you want some corporation, they can try to slow it down, but they're going to have no effect because it's open source. Anybody can change it. So unless you manage to make it illegal, which is impossible, well, I'm not going to say impossible, but which in my opinion will never happen, there's no risk. So will they? Maybe. Will there be some partnerships where, I don't know, some you know, Amazon might have preferential treatment and something on some solutions? Sure. Is there any kind of blocking realistically that can happen? I don't think so. And, you know, I, I could be wrong because I, like, I, I've never really thought about this side of it. But as I'm thinking through it now, I just don't see a way that could happen. You mentioned earlier about the U.S. being kind of behind in the tech sector and the UK as or Europe being a little bit ahead. Why do you think that is? So that was specifically around open banking. 
I think the re- the reason why is there's an in- interesting explanation that goes uh, back, uh, you know, many many years. But the U.S. was uh, so you know Europe was probably one of the first places in the world which had like a very extensive rigorous banking system that still existed as they in some forms. Then the next development uh, was in the U.S. and then the next developments were in a place like Latin America and Asia. And this has resulted as these, at these kind of offset cycles because you know integrating improvements comes at a massive upfront cost. If you want to restructure your entire network, you want to build out some expensive solution, that is something that comes at a massive upfront cost, but then there's a long-term benefit. Now, in order for that to be worth it, the level of pain or the level of, I guess, the, the extent to which it's inconvenient has to be greater than the cost of actually building it out there and then. So you have these, you know, you have these, let's say, kind of three kind of sets of regions in the way that they develop kind of leapfrog each other. So, you know, there's a period where U.S. is ahead for a few years, and then Europe is ahead for some time, and then these other countries are ahead for some time, and then U.S. goes ahead. So it's, it's because it, it, it all goes by where there is kind of the most pain. And once that there's a lot of pain, they leapfrog everyone. They integrate a bunch of innovations which work far better. It's like, why does China have WeChat? With WeChat, you can send money. You can in, do all these things which are super, super convenient. Now, as far as opinions on the issues around Chinese regime, that's a separate thing. But purely the functionality of payment, that works amazingly well through stuff like WeChat. That's extremely convenient. And that's you know and then with open banking europe is now starting to kind of jump over everyone with how open banking is being adopted how it integrates how well that works and then eventually us is going to again you know reach some point where they're they get ahead in a lot of this innovation Uh, so this is kind of in the cycle is a win is there enough pain to actually force that change because i actually was you know with looking into open banking i think it was like june 2023 so you know, a couple months ago that the U.S. has finally started to work on building out open banking uh, because open banking, one of the issues with it is that it's something that has to be pushed in at least some parts through legislative means. It's not something that gets purely pushed through technology. For the users, for the businesses on the ends of it, and for everybody on those ends, it is super beneficial. But for the banks, it is like it's against their absolute best interest to to kind of push through open banking until it starts hitting critical scale. So open banking in most parts of the world that, that's kind of been adopting at scale so far has happened by some legislative push at the start of it to kind of set off uh, this massive rocket of innovation within the banking space. And it's you know basically a couple of months back is the US starting to hit a point where maybe we will get that legislative push that's going to hit that innovation as well. Where do you think it's easier to start a, a tech startup in the UK US. or in the US? No That's doubt, US by far. Well, the why best. do you say? Why do you say that? Well, th- so there's lots of aspects, right? You could talk about the funding. You can talk about the cult, like the like the, the culture around, like legislatively, because like Delaware has lots of very beneficial precedents around businesses. There's numerous things around it, but I would say ultimately it falls all it all falls down to one thing which is the U.S. culture. U.S. culture is very pro-business. U.S. culture is very kind of pro-capitalism. U.S. taxes are very favorable. Everything in the U.S. stems out of this cultural sentiment that's very pro-business that then drives everything else, 
right? Investors have a much more pro-business attitude where they're much more willing to take crazy risks to support, you know, moonshot ideas, which probably won't work out, but if they do, they'll be massive. You have uh, taxes, which are much friendlier towards businesses. Uh, you have grants, there's far more of those. So there's, there's so many of these aspects down to the point where even like, like there's a, I think this is a good example. So I, there was a point with the, with my, the brokerage startup I had where I was in the U.S. fundraising. And I pulled over at a gas station because I need to fill up my car. And when I go in to pay, uh, because my card wasn't working with the automatic ones in there, I, so I went in. So, you know, obviously it's quite noticeable from my accent that I'm not from the U.S. So I got talking with the cashier at the, you know, at the gas station and some people overheard it. And somehow at this random gas station in the middle of nowhere, we're talking about fucking businesses and how we're building, uh, how I'm building this startup. That would never happen in Europe. That kind of culture really? around this, you know, build businesses, do this, encouraging it, being very supportive of it would never, like this just doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Now, the, to be fair, it's also like from what I've noticed, it's starting to also deteriorate in the U.S. as well. I've noticed a lot more that U.S. has starting to shift towards having more of an anti-attitude towards this as well, like a lot of the rest of the world. But by far, the U.S. still stands out as the most positive when it comes to their outlook for businesses and that because it's essentially like the American dream is built on that idea, right? People say, oh, the American dream. To me, when I kind of hear about it, where I've seen people talk about it, it's a lot about you start your own business, you do something, you make some money, you own your own house, you do all this. And it is all centered around you start your own little business. Now, it's not, it doesn't have to be a big business, right? No, not everybody has to be building like multi-billion dollar startups. But ultimately, it's still very, very positive uh, towards uh, things like this. All right, here's my last question. What advice would you give to tech entrepreneurs who are just starting out? Try shit. I think there's so there, there, there's like, I think there's two stages within the just starting out. There's the people that are actually working on something now where if it's their first startup, I would say don't make the mistake that I did and everybody else always does. And that even if I tell you this, you'll probably make yourself is you fo you'll focus way too much on the product. Everybody does this. It's, you know, I, I remember when I had my kind of first startup, I, w I saw people talking about this and I was like, oh no, I'm not focusing too much on the product. And then afterwards, at this point, I'm like, yeah, I was way too focused on the product. So if somebody out there is actually working on their first startup at this point, it's very important to do marketing, to, get, to do branding, to get customers in because they will give you better feedback than anybody else. The product is second most important and it's very narrow but it's still getting people in getting people trying it getting people using it is super valuable now for somebody that's hasn't even started yet just try shit it's like you know i, I know there's a lot of people that i kind of hear in the u.s and other places talk about oh do it in your spare time do it in these places and you know like oh do it alongside your job and like that's that's completely fair but to me i think what's most important is take the risk because if you can afford to take the risk and you get yourself to, it's still going to be very, very scary and it still stops a lot of people. But by starting, you learn so much. What I learned when I was 14, I had my first little business venture to when I learned when I was 16, when I had the next proper one to learn when I was 17, when we had that 
derivatives product that failed to when I had all these other things since then. Every time things didn't work out, something went horribly wrong. Well, I don't think anything but that horribly wrong. But when something went really, really wrong, it was difficult. It was very discouraging. But looking back on it, you learn so, so, so much. Even if you have the dumbest idea, no matter what it is, right, take a risk that you can afford and just do it because that will give you so much learning towards the next one and will also give you a lot more courage to try the next one. Because your first business probably won't work out. Your second business probably won't work out. Your third business probably won't work out. But eventually, you'll learn enough that it will. And what I mean by first business, second business, third business, it doesn't mean that your whole company has to go bankrupt. But it's when you have that first idea. I don't know. Let's say somebody decides they will make custom socks. Everybody will wear socks that are perfectly made to their foot and will 3D scan it. That's probably not a viable idea. But what they learn from trying to build this, they might learn a lot about 3D scanning and they might realize, wait, I can use that 3D scanning, what I've learned for construction or for whatever else, right? There's always takeaways that you can build on. So I would say that's probably, that's why probably it's most important to just try something, just get started, take that first risk, whatever, even if it's the small, even if you can only afford to take a tiny risk, even if the only risk you can take is two hours on a weekend, Try building it, start it, because what you'll learn from that risk will be far more valuable than not doing anything. That's great advice. All right, Allison, uh, looks like it's a wrap. Before we go, where can people go to find you and also learn more about this business that you're building? Yeah, uh, so the business and all that, that's very new, so we don't even have a website properly yet. Uh, But basically, if you just Google my name, you'll find some of my social media, and I guarantee whenever it's publicly accessible, whatever is available, whatever I'm working on, you can find it. So just Google Alison Mahmood, which is A-L-L-I-S-O-N. And then Mahmood is M-A-H-M-O-O-D. And just click on some of the results and I'm sure you'll, you know, you'll see whatever I'm working on at the time. Awesome. All right, then. You have a great day, Alison. I learned a lot and I'm pretty sure my audience did too. Take care. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Hey, sorry to interrupt. But are you looking to reach a dynamic and engaged audience of curious minds? Well, look no further. Bright Brains Podcast is the perfect platform to showcase your business or product. You'll be able to reach a diverse and intelligent audience and engage with listeners passionate about personal development, technology, and more. Elevate your brand through thought-provoking discussions. Don't miss this opportunity to promote your business on one of the fastest growing podcasts in the market. Contact us today to discuss advertising options and elevate your brand to the next level. Contact us at brightbrainspod at gmail.com to secure your advertising spot on Bright Brains today. Again, that's Bright Brains with a Z pod pod at gmail.com now back to the podcast all right that's a wrap thank you for joining us for another enlightening conversation here on bright brains i hope you've gained valuable insights and inspiration to heal your own bright ideas
If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform or however else you listen to this podcast. Also, we can be found on all major social media. Just type in Bright Brains with a Z. And remember, the brightest minds are those that never stop seeking knowledge.